Hey everyone, today's guest is food writer, cookbook author, and top chef judge Gail Simmons. Gail and I talk about a lot more than food, but I do have to add a warning that you'll be hungry after this episode. I loved hearing about Gail's unpredictable career path, from living in her mom's basement to giving us a new appreciation of food culture on one of my favorite shows. And if you've ever wondered how the top chef winners are chosen, you will soon find out that it's not an easy decision. After my conversation with Gail, April and I talk with a listener who is growing apart from her friends and wonders if there's anything she can do to reconnect with them. If you have a question and would like some unqualified and qualified advice, please look for the link at unqualified.com. Now here's Gail. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. I'm so happy to see you. I feel like the last and maybe only time we've interacted was when you guys hosted our Top Chef dinner a few years ago. Yeah, in Seattle. You were so warm and so welcoming to me. And it was one of those situations where I really didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do at all. I understand. And I was talking to Padma about this. I was so blown away by the quality of the food. That's really nice to hear. You know, most of the time, so are we, truthfully. They're really talented people. I think we had 12 chefs cooking at that party, Mm -hmm. and each dish was exceptional. And I was reading in your book, talking with my mouth full. Mm -hmm. Yes. About an early, I think it was season three you mentioned. Will you tell us about this? You were at the Aspen Food and Wine Festival. Okay. So actually, that was the season three finale. It wasn't during the festival. It was at a different time of year. But, you know, back in the early few seasons, the first few seasons, Judge's Table on a regular day, on an average episode, took hours. We would have the finale dinner sort of at dinner time. Let's say it would start a little bit early at like five, but it would take several hours just to eat all of the dishes from all three of the chefs. And then we would go to Judge's Table. And that particular finale, we ended up talking through the night and we're still at a standstill. I remember we took a break at like six in the morning, the sun was coming up and finally kind of got back and hammered it out, came to a decision. We were at the very top of Aspen Mountain shooting the finale and we got into the gondolas to go down the mountain because that's the only way to get up and down the mountain. We watched the sunrise as we were coming down the mountain. I mean, that's how long it took us. You know, we talked for like seven, eight hours. It's definitely a part of the show that people don't see. Although these days we've made it a little more succinct. (laughs) We're better talkers. (laughs) But the fascinating element that you describe in your book is, I think, the debate between consistency. Yes. And it's about kind of the highs and lows. I talked about, you know, how the reason we were sort of at this stalemate, we couldn't come to a decision is because It came down to two contestants, that particular finale. But often this is actually the same argument we have over and over again on the show. And that's one of the chefs was more consistent. His food delivered more consistently from beginning to end in terms of the full menu he gave us, technique, 
and, you know, flavor, seasoning, it was consistent. But the other contestants' food was far more exciting. It wasn't as consistent. There were highs and lows. They made mistakes along the way, but their concepts, the innovation, the creativity was large. And there's so much to be said for that. But when you're rewarding a chef at that level and you think about their experience in a restaurant or in dining, do you want to go back to a restaurant if it's inconsistent? You're looking for consistency, right? You want reliability, consistency, you want hospitality. Or are you looking for like the mad creativity and innovation? So how do you judge between those two things? Which is better or which should be more rewarded? Because they're both so important to the final product. And you ended up sort of winning the argument. The contestant who was consistent won the grand prize. We decided after many hours that time, and we've talked about that in many finales and and many episodes since, because it happens all the time. But in that particular conversation, when those particular dishes were put in front of us, we decided that the winner that year was an incredible young chef named Hung. And at that time, we we realized the menu he gave us was so consistent. His technique was so apparent that even though it might not have been as sort of innovative or creative in the way that he presented things that we'd never tasted before, we knew that his technique, like the foundations of his cooking were stronger and that his knife skills, his understanding of ingredients were stronger. And that in that instance was how we made our decision. Can I read you a quote that I needed more explanation with? Oh, sure. Wow. I love this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Okay. You write, as you're working at Le Cirque, as a cook. As a cook. Your book is fascinating. Oh, thank you. And I really admire your hard work and your diligence. Thank you. Um, These are qualities I don't always have. Well, until you look back, right? Until you look back at your body of work and realize, oh, you know what? I've accomplished a few things. Yeah. And you have. Yeah. You have. Now I knit hats and I puzzle, Gail. Right. That's good. <laughs> I mean, also skills that I don't have. Oh, well, you don't need them. They're not very useful. <laughs> so, Gail, you write, I love the logic that I found in the details. I learned what kinds of shoes to wear, loose, closed toes, and easily removable, in case anything hot or sharp falls on your foot and you have to kick the shoe off quickly. Gail, Mm -hmm. what is falling on your foot? I mean, oh, a kitchen is a dangerous place. I mean, really, that's why chefs wear clogs, right? Have you ever noticed that chefs, a lot of chefs wear clogs? But I'm still stuck on the needing to kick it off. I mean, I feel like if a knife stabs you through the toe. Well, then maybe it's too late. But things fly off counters. Things fall, hot pans, you know, sometimes knives, food, platters. Things fall during service. You are working fast in a professional kitchen and you are working with a sense of urgency. And often, if you are not careful and mindful, there is frantic chaos. It should be controlled chaos, but it's not always that way. And there's many times in a kitchen where you just want to be prepared. And the reason that a lot of chefs traditionally wear clogs is like that. They're good on your back. They're good for foot support and back support, but also you can kick them off very quickly. Should something fall? Oh man. You just don't know. Things fall. 
in a kitchen. And I'm sure your hands just get beat to shit. They get beat to shit. I mean, I'm 10 years more. I'm 15 years out of the kitchen these days, but I still have a few scars. Some chefs wear them like a badge of honor. I bet. But I imagine that working in a kitchen teaches you like choreography in crowded places. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. I had a boss uh, many years ago. I worked for a chef named Danielle Boulou, a very famous Frenchman who has, you know, some of the best restaurants in the world. He's an extraordinary man. But um, when I worked for him, the general manager of his like flagship restaurant used to have a meeting. And I, I talk about this in the book. We had a meeting every night right before service. I wasn't cooking at this point. I was running special events and projects. I was like helping Danielle write books and open restaurants and do marketing and stuff. But I would always go to that service meeting right before dinner every night. And the general manager used to always say, and I use this all the time, at the end of our meeting every night, he would say, people, this is a ballet, not a rodeo. And I always think about that for the dance of a kitchen, for the dance of a restaurant. And it's not just the back of the house. There's a choreography that's happening with the servers and the busboys and the dishwashers and the wait staff and the managers and the hostess and the maitre d'. Like everybody needs to be dancing around each other in the perfect order and with the right steps or else, you know, one person steps out of their position and it's like a domino effect, you know, everything crashes to the ground. So especially in a kitchen, again, with the hot pans and the sharp knives and the very tight spaces, especially in New York City, where I learned. And the heat. The heat. And also the um, the immense pressure to get it done and to serve the customer, the paying customer. Like it is a hotbed of stress a restaurant in general, a kitchen in particular, in every restaurant. And so uh, it is absolutely a dance. Gail, for a long time, I had a list, a running list of men in professions you should not date. And Oh, please. I'm with you. <laughs> chef was number four. There's magician. Oh, yeah. Musician, unless they're classical. Professional athlete. Maybe some Olympic exception. I don't know. Sure. I'm with you. And then chef. I think that's really safe, actually. I can say, honestly, I have never dated a chef. I live among them, and that's enough for me. I love them dearly. Yeah. Men and women, but I never needed to, like, fraternize in my own backyard, so to speak. It just felt like never a good idea. Like, dating a co-star in my world, it's much less glamorous than you would think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The long hours, the remoteness of it. Every industry, I think, is way less glamorous than it appears, right, on the surface. Yeah. Having watched Gordon Ramsay, this is it. This is my education. Yeah, well, <laughs> don't take Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> but it did occur to me that, that temper in that environment was acceptable, perhaps. Do you think that's true or not? I think that was true for a very long time. I would like to think that, like many industries, the entertainment industry among them, the restaurant and kind of chef kitchen industry is going through an enormous evolution right now, and in a way, a reckoning, because there was behavior in this industry for so long. And no one is perfect, and no industry is perfect and puritanical, and I'm certainly not playing that card myself. We are all flawed humans, but there was a level of behavior that was accommodated and often almost encouraged in the restaurant community for a long time 
you know, that dates back kind of a hundred years in a lot of ways that just never caught up to how enlightened we should be at this point in our evolution. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We have all come a long way as humans and evolved in many ways. And we've made great strides in the restaurant industry too, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be slow. As they say, it's not a revolution. And I think we're in a lot better place now than we were three years ago, five years ago. And I think that the culture of the kitchen is changing. That said, yes, there were a lot of kitchens and still kind of are where it's very hierarchical, right? And for that reason, there's a lot of power at the top and a lot of powerlessness at the bottom. Uh, You're also, again, working in that stressful atmosphere that we talked about. And you are beholden to your customers at very small margins. Making a real living in the restaurant industry is very difficult. You know, as much as people think that celebrity chefs, I say that with like air quotes, are all millionaires. It's not true. And there's a very small percentage, just like being an actor for every successful actor, there's a thousand busting tables trying to make a living at their craft. And so I think there's a lot misunderstood about the industry, but I also think that a lot was acceptable and accommodated because of that kind of odd power struggle that happened and that it was, has been, and still is in many ways, an incredibly male dominated industry. So there was a level of bravado and sort of needing to be tough and not think about the humanity of the job for a long time. But I do believe it's changing. It's just going to take years to get to necessarily, you know, a place of true equity. My mom has probably three to 400 issues of old gourmet magazines. Oh, she should get together with my mom. (laughs) (laughs) She, I mean, from the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s, she has a lot of nostalgia, I think, for that kind of food world that she grew up in. But I'm 44. I think we're the same. Mm -hmm. I just turned 45. Hey, congratulations. Thank you very much. You too. I'm right behind you. Yeah, we're here. Yeah, bicentennial babies. That's exactly right. So I want to explore a little bit with you is this sort of vague notion that I have of the glamorization a little bit of the food world. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's become sexier. Yeah, like the popular zeitgeist, right? Like it's not anymore relegated to our moms. Right. And I think Top Chef was very crucial, I guess. Yeah, in some way, absolutely. We definitely contributed, and I would like to say for the better, but there's obviously so many things that come into play. And I, you know, I feel because of my specific age, our specific age, like I grew up in this moment in the restaurant industry, in the, in the world of food media, right at that crossroads where food became part of like a popular culture moment where it wasn't necessarily when my mom was growing up and then learning to cook herself. But at the same time, magazines like Gourmet, sure, were around for 40, 50 years, right? And there's very few pictures. Yes, I know. And there was illustrations way back in the early days, but it's beautiful. I mean, those issues are beautiful. My mom's, she's a fabulous cook, like your mom. Mm. In fact, reading your book made me think a lot about the similarities in our parents. Oh, I like to hear that. It was really nice. And I think you're right about how food And I'm going to like generalize a little bit here, but the evolution of restaurants and kind of the glamorization of food culture 
is definitely like a major change in our generation. And then obviously, you know, into the millennials, et cetera, onward, who have grown up with social media where they can like in two seconds post and spread the word about, you know, those pornographic food images that we all are bombarded with every day. But really, if you think back to like the last just hundred years, people who worked in restaurants weren't given much credit. Like you didn't go to restaurants and care who the chef was. It was more about the theater and it was kind of very stuffy and it was all from a very sort of Western European perspective, a white perspective, a perspective that was sort of fussy and snobby and, you know, elitist in a way, but it wasn't incredibly diverse. And I think in the last, let's say, 20, 30 years, there's been a number of factors that have contributed to like what I kind of call the democratization of food or of food media, right? Of the access to food media. Obviously, social media has changed that. I think our palates, our cravings have changed because we don't want to eat that way. We don't have time to eat that way. We all are two parent working families trying to make a living and I don't sit down with my fine china the way that my mom is begging me to because she doesn't know who to give it to anymore because I don't want it in the Mm, will. Yes. Like, you know, all these things that what kind of food do we want to eat? I also think a major contributor has been the accessibility of travel, you know, whether it's by plane or train or automobile. And then through travel, the cultural understanding of the world, the different cultures of the world and their contributions and that good food or what is considered good food isn't just from a white Western European perspective anymore. And that not only can food be deeply personal, but food on every continent has hundreds of years of history and tells the story of the people who have made it throughout that country's history. Food is also super regional, we now understand. I mean, if you think back to like the 70s or 60s even, when our parents were eating Chinese food, it was just one kind of Americanized Chinese food. Right now, we understand, and we're still learning, obviously, about this massive country that is micro-regional and the incredible you know, thousands of years, far older than America, this country of modern America, what we consider sort of like the way that we eat and, you know, the contributions they made to the food world. And that goes for hundreds of countries from Africa to Asia to South America to Australia. You know, there is so much to discover in so many different perspectives. And I think all of that, as we grow and as our the generations after us grow and understand that more thoroughly, it kind of opens the doors to a broader lens of food. And it's allowed everyone to have a voice, to work in ways they weren't able to and have access to understanding food in ways they weren't able to, which is just like made the way we eat so different and much more casual and much more based on personal likes and dislikes, not just what one person, one critic says is good. And I don't know, I think that's all been a piece of the proverbial pie, so to speak. And Top Chef certainly contributed to that, too. It was the first restaurant show that really showed the true life of chefs, professional chefs in America. And it was a big risk when we started to do it. But what we realized very quickly is that we sort of threw open the kitchen door to civilians who had no idea what it took to be a great chef and the years of training and the language of food and what it meant to be a good cook. And that can mean so many different things or what it means to 
judge food or think about the way we eat food or what goes into making a good dish. And uh, we were kind of like the first show to talk about all these things that Tom and I joke all the time how like we created a generation of monsters who <laughs> sit down at every restaurant and announce that totally announce that there's like not enough acid. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of our fault we created those monsters. But also it has expanded the way we all think about food. And there's nothing more rewarding than that. When I bump into someone in the grocery store and they tell me that they watch Top Chef with their child and now their child wants to be a chef or wants to cook with them after school or when they go to a restaurant wants to try a new food or buy something new in the grocery store that they've never tried. And like that, that's the point, I guess, right? Expanding our culinary perspective. Yeah, I'm really grateful that I live during this time. Yeah. Right. Me too. I'm not even sure I answered your question, but I kind of hope I did. You did. You <laughs> totally did. I wanted to explore a shift and get to the bottom of it. And I think that your answer was amazing. Okay, cool. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Gail, I love how you write about finding the job that you love. Let me ask mm. you, do you still love Top Chef? I do. It's a loaded question, but it's a fair question. You know, no job is easy. That's why it's called work, yeah. by the way, yeah. and not play. But I feel very fortunate to go to work with the people I work with every day and in the places I get to work. There are days when I certainly wake up, as I'm sure you do too, and question my life choices. Um, but overall, yes, like I decided when I graduated college that I wanted to work in the food industry. And I didn't quite know what that meant, but I was enamored with food and eating and traveling and learning kind of the anthropology of food. And through totally unchartered circumstances, I made it happen and I still get to do it and more. I mean, I, I'm doing things now that when I was my 20 year old self, I never thought I would be able to do for sure. And that I get to like meet the people I get to meet and travel and taste the things that I, I mean, the thing I love about my job is that every bite I put in my mouth is different. And I get to talk about it with people who love it too, right? So most days it's pretty great. I really admire how you set a goal for yourself. And in your book, you write about how you, through a shit ton of hard work and hustling, <laughs> you made that happen. There's an anecdote you write about. I think your mom had you write a list. Yes, that's right. Will you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, sure. And it's funny because you say I set a goal, but it's interesting, Anna, when I set that goal 20 years ago when I graduated college, 20 plus years ago, I didn't articulate it that way. Like I didn't know exactly what the long game was going to be, right? I didn't know. And thank goodness I didn't know. You know, you got to be a little naive or else you're never going to actually do it. You're never going to actually take any risk if you actually know what that will involve. But I had this like loose plan, this sort of nebulous idea that I wanted to work in food media. And like 25 years ago, food media meant something totally different than it does today, right? But that was my plan, my loose plan. But I also 
always very consciously never made like five-year goals. You know, it's like making a birth plan, which I know you understand. People be like, what's your birth plan? And now I know having had two children that that is bullshit. Yeah. Call bullshit on the birth plan because no matter how you want it to go, it's not how it goes. And you just want to come out the other side in one piece with a healthy child. And I feel kind of the same way about my career. Like I had no idea and I'm glad that I didn't put too much stock in it going one way or the other because then I would have never gotten to where I am. All that said, when I was 22 and I graduated college and I came home from college and I had this like loose idea of being in the food world and I had no idea what it was. And my mom was actually kind of worried about me because she thought I was pretty directionless. And I was like living in my parents' basement in Toronto. And she sent a family friend to give me like a pep talk who was about like six or seven years older than me and super cool and had started her own career and was doing really well and who she knew I admired. And she was like, why don't you just make a list of the things you like to do? Because I didn't know how to like get an actual paying job and get out of my parents' basement, right? And this family friend of mine, whose name is Michelle, said like, just sit down and like write a list of things that you like to do. Like, don't worry so much if they're actual job descriptions, just like, what are you into? And on this little piece of paper, I wrote, eat, write, travel, cook. Yeah. And that was like very top line, right? Um, And she was like, yeah, okay, we're done. My work's done. Why don't you just go do it? Like, I'm not quite sure what your mom's so worried about. You have interests and those interests could become a job if you get up and get dressed and like get out the door and just do it. And that was like the first time that I guess anyone had given me permission to do the things that I loved instead of feeling that I had to do something to make my parents proud or that was like deemed as an acceptable career because so many of my amazing, brilliant, smart girlfriends were like going to law school or doing a PhD or getting an MBA or going to work in finance. And I was like, I don't want to do any of those things, but I didn't know exactly how to do the things I did want to do. And that was like the first time I sort of put them into words and like manifested that idea. And I still think about those four words every day and I'm still doing them. I love it that your mom gave you that gift. True. That feels like really generous of a parent. Gail, if you don't mind, will you tell us a little bit about living in the kibbutz? Oh, sure. Am I saying that correctly? Kibbutz. Yes, you are. Beautifully. Kibbutz. Oh, good. Yep. I was 18 years old. I was graduated high school. I had, you know, four months off before, maybe three months off, let's say, I can't remember, uh, before I started college. It was that summer in between. And my, you know, high school boyfriend and I decided to go to Israel and to work on a kibbutz for the summer. We had both been to Israel once before I had gone with my family when I was 16. And he had gone on like a teen tour type trip the year before. And um, a kibbutz is sort of a, a controversial thing in a lot of ways. I mean, is it? Well, a little bit. It has an interesting history. And I'm going to give one very general overview of what a kibbutz is. And it is a multitude of things, positive and negative. But, you know, Israel is a new ish country. It was founded in 1946. And when Israel gained independence, It was mostly a desert, as the Middle East climate is in many parts. But the general history of a kibbutz is that they needed to farm the land so that it was livable for this country. 
And how do you do that? So one of the ways that they farmed the land was that they built essentially these communal farms all over the country. And it was like a very socialist idea, ideal even, where families came together, many, many families, they lived together, they pooled all their resources, all their finances, they owned it all completely, all together, evenly, and they lived together. Was there currency exchanged within the kibbutz? Yes and no. Israel has a currency and it was about money. And often all these farms, they all started factories and businesses over the years. And like, you know, some of them made shoes. And so, so it wasn't just all traditional farming, although it started that way. But yes, they were ultimately selling to the outside world as well. So it wasn't like a totally closed commune. It started that way to just till the land, but then, you know, grew into the businesses. And then they would sell, like, let's say one kibbutz grew avocados, they would sell their avocados all over the country, you know, so they were making money, but also pooling all their resources. For example, all the children would live together. So they didn't necessarily live in individual family homes. All the children lived together, were raised together. And some of the adult jobs were to care for the children while other people, other adult jobs were to farm, other adult jobs were to work in the kitchen, you know, and as soon as you were old enough to stand, you contributed. You were working as well as going to school on the kibbutz. And then when you turned 18, man or woman, you went to do mandatory service in the army, which you still do in Israel. And then you come back. It is an imperfect system. And these days, many kibbutz have not survived. But for the first many years of the country's existence, it became a really extraordinary and in many ways successful way to build the country economically and physically. It is an incredibly agriculturally rich country in large part because of these kibbutz. So to go back to my story, I was 18 and I decided to go work on one for a summer with my boyfriend. And you kind of get assigned, you can volunteer in exchange for room and board. You know, you get three meals a day and a, and a roof over your head. You can volunteer to work on one of these farms on a kibbutz. And you, you're assigned once. So you don't necessarily know where you're going to go in the country or the job you're going to have. But they use your skills, whatever skills you have. You know, when I was at the kibbutz I was on, I remember there was a traveler who was also volunteering and he was from... South America, but he was a veterinarian who had taken a year off to do this. And so they were obviously using his skills as a veterinarian with the animal husbandry at this particular kibbutz because every kibbutz did different things. And we had cows and chickens. And so he was helping with the veterinary clinic there. But I was 18. I did not have that many specific skills. And so I didn't know how I was going to sort of work. And um, we arrived on the kibbutz and we were assigned at first to work in the chicken farm. It was an egg farm. This kibbutz sold all their eggs. They had thousands of chickens and they sold eggs to all of the country. So there was many people needed to pick eggs every single day, many times a day. And there was a big system by which obviously the eggs were pasteurized and loaded and cleaned and shipped and obviously put into the system, so to speak. And so I was assigned the chicken farm with my boyfriend and we worked there together for many, many weeks. Ultimately, the relationship fell apart as young love often does. And I decided that it was not healthy for me emotionally to be working in the chicken farm with him anymore, day in, day out. When we were, really, it was so sad. I was like crying myself to sleep at night. So um, I asked to be moved and they moved me for a brief stint to the avocado and lychee fields 
to work on the irrigation systems of the avocado trees, which were beautiful. And interestingly, it was lychee season, even though I was working on the avocado fields, but there were lychee trees right beside us. So anytime we got hot and tired in the holiday, we would just like pick the lychees off the trees and eat them as our snack, uh, which was pretty great. And after that, they moved me to the kitchen. You know, there was 700 people working on the kibbutz that I lived on and they needed three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The entire kibbutz eats in a central dining hall. I mean, it's almost like camp. And so I worked in that kitchen first as a dishwasher, and then I started cooking and I was on breakfast duty. And that was my first real cooking job, actually. That was the first time I ever worked in a professional-ish kitchen. That's amazing. Well, going through heartbreak. Heartbreak. Oh, young I know. heartbreak. It's so funny to think about now how far we've all come. But, you know, you also realize in hindsight You know, I remember getting home from that trip and going off to college and saying to my mom, I was just still sort of a puddle of raw emotion. And I remember saying to my mom, why would you ever let your 18 year old daughter go to the Middle East with a boy who like, you must have known it was not going to work. Like he was not the one, you know. And I remember her saying to me, like, Gail, I had no choice. Either you went knowing I was here to support you Or you went with me like disapproving and that wouldn't serve anyone, right? And so at least I could support you and help you through it. And I knew that if it didn't work out, you could come back and we would be here for you and you would never feel like we're disappointed or that, you know, we weren't there for you and we knew that you could come back to us at any time. And like, I just hope I can have that perspective when my daughter decides to do something inane, which inevitably she will, right? So there we are. I do love that philosophy because what a great learning experience at 18 too. It was. Like in terms of hard work, discipline, mm-hmm. gratitude, mm-hmm. sense of community. Yeah, for sure. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Would you mind telling us how you met your husband? Oh, sure. It's not the most interesting story in the world, but I guess, yeah, there's a romance there. My husband, Jeremy, and I have been married. It'll be 13 years, I think, in August. But we've been together for 21 years. We met in New York City when I was at culinary school, and he was doing a graduate degree in music entertainment business at NYU. But we're both Canadian, which is an irony that my mother can't believe I like moved to New York City and found another Canadian. 
didn't do anything for the green card situation, but that's okay. We love him anyway. He's from Montreal and I'm from Toronto, but we met through a few mutual friends that he went to college and summer camp with growing up and I went to high school with. And, you know, we all ended up in New York together. And we had this little like expat Canadian posse of people that when we all moved to New York, we gravitated to. And we were both in this kind of crew of friends. We never knew each other, but one of my really good friends from high school and college was his best friend from summer camp since he was 10 years old, a guy named Brandon Creed. And Brandon introduced us. It wasn't like a setup in any way. Brandon and a bunch of our other friends, my roommate at the time, Jamie, and our other friend, Seth, these were friends that we were all kind of hanging out with. And I was friends with Jeremy for a year. And it was like a year into our friendship where, I don't know, like I woke up one day and something clicked and I looked at him differently and romance bloomed, I guess. And we've been together ever since. That was 2000. So we've been through it, through it all together. I don't think it was a coincidence that you two were Canadian, though. You know what I mean? I think there's something about like finding a home in a large city, you know? Absolutely. There was a familiarity and a comfort in each other. A year into our relationship, 9-11 happened just blocks from my house. And we kind of got through it together. And since then, you know, we've faced so many things. And now we have two children together. And so far, so good. Gail, I did want to mention how your story about 9-11 that morning with Jeffrey and then how you were serving, if I remember correctly, the Coq Vin. Yeah, that was the month of Coq Vin. I would pack up buckets, literally, of Coq Vin and bring it to the chefs who were the chefs at Balthazar at the time. They now have a different restaurant in New York. They were taking donations from restaurants and chefs, and we were bringing them our cockle van to serve to the rescue workers at the Trade Center. Yeah. I can't imagine. You have a good memory. Well, I really love your book. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Gail, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Well, it's funny because I'm like terrible at making decisions, and I'm also the kind of person where everywhere I go, I want to live. You know, I like look at real estate, and I'm like, let's just move here. I love it here. If I could live anywhere for a year, and this is something I've talked to my husband about on countless occasions, we would move to Japan, to probably to Tokyo, possibly to Kyoto, because it is smaller and slightly less chaotic and overwhelming. But I've had the pleasure of visiting Japan on a few occasions. And my husband and I are both just so completely smitten by the country in so many ways. You know, we've never spent enough time there to really delve as deep as we want to. And I think it's the kind of place, Tokyo in particular, that you can't possibly ever really know because it's so rich and so massive and its history is so layered, like so many places on earth, obviously. But there is so much physical beauty in Japan But also culturally and obviously from a food perspective, I find that it is like the most creative, interesting and focused, obsessive culture I've ever known. And I'm sort of amazed with it. And I would love to be able to really spend time learning the language, learning more about the history and exploring it further because it's just like the kind of place that you walk down the street and every turn you take, you're on a new adventure. I feel like you were about to touch almost on a philosophical level about the food in Japan. Do you have a thought on that? Well, I do in that I think we 
know so so little about it that it is such an interesting food culture because you know when we think of Japanese food we think of a few different things but really in Japan there are so many people who've dedicated their entire life's work to a single craft within food culture so they're not just like a chef and they can cook everything it's like one person who studies just yakitori just tempura just the art of sushi and sashimi for years upon years and become masters at this one thing, which is sort of unknown to us in a lot of ways, because I think our culture sort of sets us up to want to do lots of different things all the time. And no one would ever be able to sit still for that long to kind of like learn such narrow, specific, but such deep craftsmanship in a way, you know, and that doesn't just go for food in Japan. I think it actually goes for so much of their art and culture from like music to indigo dyeing to rice growing uh, to sake making, you know, they have hundreds of years of tradition and building on the masters before you, it takes a lifetime in itself. And I'm kind of in awe of that discipline for sure. My husband shot a movie in Japan and he speaks about this town that specialized in soba noodles. Right, right. Just soba. And people think that like ramen, soba, udon, they're all the same. They are not. The ritual, right? And the method for making them. And it's, yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. I'm envious of that experience of his. He would love to live in Japan for a year. My dream would be Venice. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'll visit you there. The idea of getting to know that intimate city that feels kind of filled with mystery. I think it is. I mean, literally the the layers and layers that have been built upon it over hundreds of years. It's an amazing place. It's so much more than I think the like eight blocks that tourists see when they visit it, you know? I just love it there. All right. What or who has influenced your career the most? This is a hard one because... I've had a lot of great mentors in my life. And I do think that like every step of your life you learn from and it takes you to the next place. So you can't kind of do the thing you're doing without having done exactly the thing before it with the people who you did it with. I don't know. I would say influence my career was probably um, my first job after I worked. You know, I, I worked for newspapers and magazines for a little while and I realized I wanted to work. In Toronto, right? In Toronto. Yep, exactly. And then I wanted to learn about food. So I quit my job and I moved to New York and I went to culinary school and then I worked in kitchens, uh, you know, as a young cook for a little while, knowing I always wanted to ultimately write or be in food media in some way. And the first job I got after I worked as a cook was working as the assistant to a man named Jeffrey Steingarten. I love how you write about this because it did seem like a particularly intense and specific oh, yes. tutelage. Yeah, let's call it apprenticeship. Um, yeah. Yes, it was. And it doesn't exist anymore, the job, the way it used to. It was like at a moment in time, you know, in food history where there was like a few women before me and after me and we all had this job. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about Jeffrey and his background? For sure. So Jeffrey Steingarten is, was for 30 plus years, the food critic at Vogue magazine, you know, and he didn't do restaurant reviews and he didn't do kind of quick, short format, like what's hot food stories. He did long format food journalism, the way that like you almost never see anymore. And it was very particular in Vogue because Vogue was not known to be a food magazine. Obviously, Vogue has always been the pinnacle of fashion and 
Sometimes that meant the opposite of food, but Jeffrey's writing worked in Vogue so well because it was so in-depth, it was so knowledgeable, it was so well-researched and so particular that it gained an audience there because it was sort of like unique to the magazine, uh, what he wrote about and his perspective. He also was not, you know, a model or or a female, right? Like he was a man writing about food in a fashion magazine, and he also has nothing to do with fashion whatsoever. But his writing was just so in-depth and brilliant. And so he had an assistant, you know, an Every two years, he would get a new assistant because you can only kind of do any assistant job for two years, let alone work alone with him in his house working on his articles for Vogue. It was a very intense job. But Jeffrey, you know, is still probably, I'd like to think, one of the greatest food writers of our time. I mean, he's still alive and he's not writing as much as he used to. But if you ever read his books, uh, his first book was called The Man Who Ate Everything. And his second book was called It Must Have Been Something I Ate. And I wrote his second book with him or all the articles from Vogue that appear in that book. And he just sort of like gave me a master class in understanding food writing. And it wasn't because he sat down and mentored me out of the kindness of his heart. It was trial by fire in a lot of ways. It was like, I'm doing an article about this. You need to figure it out. Go forth and don't come back to me until you have the answer. And sometimes that kind of felt like negative reinforcement. But he gave me like such an incredible education He also like opened up the world of food to me. It was, you know, the world of New York restaurants and chefs. He would fly all over the world researching for his articles. You know, one month he would be writing about traditional Thai curries and he would go to Thailand for a month and then come home and make me track down the best possible mortar and pestle to make Thai curry at home. Or sometimes he would write about making Neapolitan pizza in a home oven and replicating the perfect pizza crust recipe. So I had to run around to every wood oven in the city of New York and measure the temperature and try to replicate the recipe for the dough for days on end. So it was like really my dream job, but also he just gave me carte blanche to explore and fail and learn from my mistakes and get my hands dirty. And then he also like introduced me to so many of my idols in the food world because he would be like having casual dinner with Martha Stewart that night or Alice Waters, or he was having a meeting with Anna Winter and needed me to like come along to take notes or having dinner with Danielle Ballou. And that was ultimately like how I went to work for Danielle was through that relationship, you know, many years later. So he just like made the world of food accessible to me in this like New York way that I don't think would have ever been possible anywhere else. And I'm grateful to him for that. I think like the way you describe his diligence. I think that's a good word for it, actually. You talk a lot about geese and roosters. like Yeah, we cooked a lot of geese and roosters. <laughs> and like the caviar tastings. Yes. So it was like very glamorous, but also very unglamorous. Like we needed roosters because we did a, an article about coq au vin, which is a traditional French dish from the French countryside that like you think of coq au vin and you think of like Julia Childs and like a, it's a traditional braised chicken dish. But what people probably don't know is that the reason coq au vin exists is first of all, it's coq au vin, which is a cock, which is a male chicken, a rooster. But the reason that it is braised for three days in red wine is because traditionally it was how to use an old rooster that had like dried up and was no longer good at impregnating hens anymore. 
So what do you do with this old rooster? And when you're on a farm and you need to use everything you have, you can't just throw a rooster in the garbage. (laughs) You know, you need to use it for food. And so old roosters are tough. So how do you make them tender and edible? You braise them in red wine for three days. And that's how Cockleven started. So when Jeffrey's going to do an article about Cockleven, he's not going to take the easy way out. I had to figure out a way of getting old roosters delivered to the house every day. And it was challenges like that that kind of like made me just understand, I don't know, the process of writing great recipes for sure. What was the best advice you've ever been given? Wow, it's a hard one for sure. I always go to, for some reason, the worst advice that I was ever given. Right, which is sometimes helpful to do the opposite, yeah. And there was value in that too. Yep. I remember my seventh grade, I don't know if this is my best advice, but it's what's coming to mind that I use in my life all the time. My seventh grade English teacher, Ms. March, explained to me once how life is sort of like the rungs of a ladder and you can't really skip rungs. You need to step on each step to get to the next one. And that even though you might not understand why, every one of those rungs is important in building who you are and building your character, but it's worth sticking with it to get to the next one. And I think about that a lot in my life, in my job, in envisioning sort of like sometimes when you're in a particular challenge, which we all find ourselves in, that I am unable to like see the forest for the trees, but that every rung, every step has its purpose. And I know that I can get through it and it'll bring me somewhere higher, better, stronger, you know, maybe it's cliche, but I do think about that a lot. I think that's wonderful, like food for thought. And because I know you so well now from your book, (laughs) I believe that you're incredibly hardworking and in those hot, like, gnarly kitchens, (laughs) like, late at night, like, you feel your sweat. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And there is a lot of sweat. But I don't know. I, I do think that you grow from those moments, right? Like, it wasn't all pleasurable. I did a lot of crying over those hot ovens, too. But... I can look back now and know that I'm so glad I did it because it taught me a skill and it was some of the hardest work of my life, but was invaluable too, right? Gail, what are you passionate about lately? You know, a lot of little things. And I think you kind of hit on the head that sometimes it's little things that get you and speak to you, you know, finding moments like You know, I'm trying to practice with my children how to teach them control over their emotions, to express their emotions, to calm themselves down. But what the last year and a half has taught me is that I'm not necessarily so good at it myself. And so finding time for things that allow me to like what we call in our house, lower the temperature and uh, take deep breaths. So, you know, these past couple months, it's like riding my bike which like, I just think is the best feeling in the whole world. That feeling of like independence and self perseverance that I really love to do. And I always come back refreshed, you know, it's like mind clearing, stress lowering. So I'm really into riding my bike right now. That sounds really nice, actually. Do celebrities in the food world, female celebrities, get asked the question, how do you juggle it all? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think everyone who's public facing in any way gets that question. I think it's specific to motherhood. Yeah. You know what else we get that's particular to the food world? Yeah. That we get that our male counterparts don't get as much is, oh, how do you eat so much and not gain weight? Oh. How do you eat all that food and not worry about your weight all the time? 
And that's a question I get and Padma get, I know, far more than Tom. I'm not saying Tom doesn't get it, but certainly doesn't get it as much. How do you respond? The same way I respond to the how do you juggle it all, it's that I am a work in progress and I don't really have an answer. I just kind of do the best I can because I love what I do. And I'm going to keep doing it, even if it's imperfect, you know, I have not figured out how to juggle it all because every day is a fucking juggle, you know, (laughs) every damn day. And I don't think there's a way, like, I don't think you can have it all. I don't think all, what's all, because whatever it is, is like unattainable, whatever we all imagine it to be. And if we had it, it wouldn't be so... I don't know. There would be no drive to do it, to do anything else. But I do thrive at a challenge. I do like a challenge, but I just find that like I can only do like the best I can do every day and get through like, what do I have to do tomorrow? Let's get through that and then think about the next day. And obviously I feel lucky to have resources, but at the same time, like I fail often. And the same goes for food. Like I'm not perfect. Yeah. I want to lose five, 10 pounds. That would be great. Why? I don't know. Because people said I would look better. I don't know. I'm also sort of happy because Somehow I found a partner to love me and I found friends who are loyal to me and who I love spending time with. And I have a family around me that I care about and I have a job that I like going to. So like if I don't weigh five or 10 pounds less, that's okay. I'm still going to be happy with my life. And, you know, like just can't be that important. I feel like that's kind of the gift of the 40s for me. Yeah. Yes. And that's been awesome. Yeah, I agree. Like just kind of knowing that it's not as important as I may have thought it was a while back. I also just am so aware of setting an example for my kids too. And like, that's wonderful. Yes. Priorities, you know, and look, we're all hard on ourselves for sure. And most of the time it doesn't serve anyone to be that way, but like, there's also genetics. I'm lucky that I do have an appetite and I love food and I eat and I'm relatively healthy physically. More than anything, it's just about being healthy. I want to be around as long as possible for my kids, hopefully for my grandkids. So just taking care of yourself. But that also is a mental game more than a physical one. I would love for you, if you can, to describe a perfect meal that you've had. Like, can you take us away? Sure. You know, it's hard to think of like the best meal ever, but I can talk about a recent meal that I really loved that was really special right here in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, I love Charleston. Me too. It's such an interesting, beautiful place. I don't know it very well. It's worth a visit for sure. Again, the food culture here is really interesting and really delicious. And like, I can think about one meal that I had last year here that was really, really special to me was a meal by a man named BJ Dennis, who is a chef here in Charleston. And he's descended from the Gullah Geechee, which were ultimately slaves that were brought here, but they were brought here for their understanding of rice culture and seafood because Charleston is obviously, their food culture is rice and seafood based from, you know, hundreds of years back. And he has been an ambassador of Gullah Geechee food for as long as he's been a chef. Was it at a restaurant or was it at? No, it wasn't at a restaurant. So last year, because of the pandemic, he cooks privately and he has a lot of projects he works on. But I asked if he could come and cook a meal for my friends and I at our friend's house. And he brought everything over and we did it outside. And he brought some incredible food 
And it really was like one of the best meals I'd ever had. This is all very traditional food right here in Charleston that really comes out of his culture and is very personal to him. Okra soup with shrimp and wreckfish. Can we talk about okra for a second? Yes. I have a lot of family in Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, so not far, two hours away. Yeah, not far. And I've obviously had okra before. And, it, you know, we don't eat it too much out here on the West Coast because I don't think it's very transportable. Yeah. It's very polarizing, okra. Is it? In a textural way. Yeah. It feels like soup is actually the perfect, I don't know, preparation for okra. Yeah, method for cooking it. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah. sorry. Go on. I'm totally loving this. Okra is interesting because, um, I mean, it's like a traditional crop from this part from here. And a lot of people who haven't grown up with it, including me, because there's not a lot of okra in Canada, it's hard to get if you're not used to it because it has sort of like a slimy texture if you're not cooking it properly. And that sometimes, or if you are, if you like it, but if you're not familiar with it, it can be kind of unfamiliar. But he makes this beautiful soup with shrimp and wreckfish. Wreckfish is a very sustainable fish that's eaten a lot right here. And it's kind of called Charleston gumbo in that it's cooked in a similar way to gumbo with rice. And it is rich and cooked slowly. And the okra really adds to that texture. And it's viscous. It has a viscosity to it, but it's not slimy at all. It's just flavorful and rich and really beautiful. He made us hot cornbread, you know, in a cast iron skillet. Oh. And he just drizzled cane syrup on it that was made locally by friends of his on a farm not far away. And just like dipping it in the cane syrup was like such a treat. He made squash stewed with peppers and tomatoes. And he made crab fried rice, which is very particular to this corner of the world and to Gullah Geechee culture. I'd had it from him once before when Top Chef shot in Charleston, he made us crab fried rice. And his is the standard by which all are measured. And I've eaten it in a couple places here in Charleston, but like it is deeply personal. It's the kind of dish that like every family has their own variation of it. Although if you ask, it sounds very simple. It's not very many ingredients, but BJ Dennis makes it so beautifully. It's so flavorful and so delicious with like the crispy caramelized oh. bits of oh my god rice and freshly picked crab. And what kind of spices are used? Well, he uses a lot of herbs. There's some spice, but it's not spicy as a cuisine generally, not necessarily. And then I remember he made for dessert a peach and blackberry cobbler, oh. which is like, you know, the ultimate summer dessert anywhere. But here with local peaches and blackberries and made by him with this beautiful crumbly cobbler biscuit crust. It was just like completely, I was like enraptured by the whole meal. And it was a meal that I will never forget. And it probably was maybe like, I imagine one of the first or few times at least you were able to gather with friends and like, yes, it was just like six of us. Absolutely. This magical night. And not only that, but it was like a perfect example of eating food from a culture that is totally foreign to me in many ways that I'm learning about and that I can see and understand so much more clearly now and I can have empathy for. And really, it was like a, such a learning experience because I grew up so far away from anywhere near here. And so it was like an education, but also you identify with you know, pieces of the story and the ingredients. And it, you know, it just is like such an eye-opening lens through which to understand someone else. 
And I think that was like the beauty of what BJ was really able to do and is able to do with the food he cooks. Oh, that's a life goal for me then. Mm. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Come on down. Gail, I just adore you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Ditto. Thank you so much for having such a thoughtful conversation. I really appreciate getting to chat with you again, Anna. Yeah, me too. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. You too. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey everyone, April Beyer is back, now officially as my much-needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. Sam, you are here with April, and will you tell us what's going on? Yes, I uh, basically reached out to you guys, really just wanting friendship advice. I... I'm 30. I'm a single professional um, on the East Coast. And I've met most of my friends in like very certain phases of my life. I feel like a lot of people, like I met them in college, in grad school. Um, I made like the core group of my friends now when I was like between the ages of like 21, 23, just like when we all had like everything in common, had similar entry level jobs, single, made the same amount of money, very similar life situation. And I think now, obviously, COVID disrupted a lot in life, but I think I have just been really struggling um, with how to kind of maintain a lot of my friendships now that literally everyone, we're all in very different phases. And I think just really struggling with when to, when to let go, because there have just been so many life changes. Is the distance that you are describing, are those friends married? Like, do they have kids as well? There has definitely been that distance with my friends who are married and who have kids. And I've actually had a really good like boundary setting conversations with particularly with my friends with kids um, where I know we're probably only going to hang out once every few months. It's not going to be like every week like it was, you know, even before COVID. So I feel like I've been able to kind of learn how to hamper down in some of those those parts of friendship. But I think COVID aside, I've had a lot of friends go through a lot of grief. Um, a really good friend who got divorced and she has just, it's been really hard trying to navigate how to kind of keep that friendship alive when I know she's feeling a lot of shame. And I mean, I've actually really struggled with how to communicate because I don't know, <laughs> I don't know the right thing to say. <laughs> um, even some of those differences with my friends who are actually still single. I've still found there to be a lot of tension and just like frustration and um, in particular, two really good friends. I think some of it has come up with COVID, but yeah, even just like normal life changes, 
starting new jobs or I know a big thing for me for this year was actually starting a new relationship, which is still very new. But I've even found some tension in just conversations and noticed friends just being frustrated with me now that I'm dating someone and spending a lot of time with someone. Even just two years ago, I wasn't super interested in getting married. But I feel like once I hit that 30 mark, I was like, I actually am interested in having kids and wanting to pursue a relationship. It's really been across the board. These people in my life that I really care about, most of them that I've known for like at least 10 years, I feel like I've just like been failing on the on the friend front. So two things that occurred to me. One, I would be interested to know what you're looking for in the idea of a new friend. You mentioned the idea of letting go. And I didn't know if there was like a particular friend that you were kind of mourning, maybe. Yes, I would say there's two friendships that consistently over eight or nine years have like hung out with on a regular basis. There has been some pretty big like shifts. I'll just focus on one though. We actually have been friends since high school. And even with like a lot of very deep similarities in terms of goals in life, career goals, we've had a lot of really great conversations, a lot of fun together. I didn't really think there was anything wrong with our friendship until, um, so I actually met someone in January and was super excited about it. Was like super excited, super giddy. Is a really like wonderful guy. And this relationship just feels so different from other ones that I've been in. And immediately she was just like trying to pick out the negative, wasn't super excited and actually like cut our hangout short. And I tried reaching out. I know she's had some pretty big things happen with her family and just some big struggles with career stuff. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to be there for her, how to also be excited for some of these big things in my life. But what ended up happening was I kept trying to text her to see if she wanted to hang out, get together, if she needed help with anything. Um, And she actually just like stopped responding. And she reached out like in April, just saying like, I need time. I don't really have like the emotional capacity to talk to you which was really hard to hear, especially to hear it like via text message. But I wanted to respect that boundary that she was setting. And she was like, can you reach out in May? So I was like, I'll be here for you. Like I'll reach out in May. And then I reached out and she never texted back. And then I guess two weeks ago, I actually found out she blocked me on like all social media, which just feels like insanely extreme. And I like have no idea what happened. And I feel like I've spent a lot of time just like being really sad and frustrated and just like, crying. And I think on my end, I've been more concerned of like, have I just not been holding space for her? Have I not been a good listener? I actually keep thinking back to that text message. And I'm just like, should I have just like not listened to myself of like, respect this boundary and just called her. And I just like, I keep replaying those moments in my head. That's like definitely the most extreme example. Because that one, I definitely just have to like mourn and move on. She clearly doesn't want to talk to me. But I think just like, the only key difference in my life, and I don't know what's happened in her life since then, something big could have happened, I don't know, is that I started seriously dating someone. Well, here's what I bet. So she's going through all this shit. She wants to talk to you about it. And you are having this total high, like so excited to share your new love with your dear friend. And her takeaway is like, oh my God, I can't believe Samantha just went on and on and on about her new guy. This has happened in my life. And she warped that into taking it kind of personally, which is illogical. And maybe she is going through a ton of stuff. I just wanted to frame that for you a little bit because it feels too illogical to take too personally, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And it feels like you kind of know that. Yeah. 
I think I do. And I feel like what I've been doing a lot lately is like reflecting back on those key moments, like that text message when I was like, did I actually do the right thing? Or was this just like a natural progression of what was going to happen regardless? Oh, the nighttime hamster wheel is terrible. I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's happened to all of us. That happens to a lot of young women, right? Where they're not in a relationship or their career isn't going really well. You get a job or promotion or a boyfriend and it's like, how dare you be joyful? The comparison is so glaring suddenly. Yeah. I have a question for you, Samantha. Mm -hmm. Are you feeling like your friends aren't supportive enough for you? Or are you worrying that you're not there enough for them because you feel like you've evolved past them? I can't tell if it's that you want these people back or if you're trying to figure out a way to transition and create a new group of friends. Maybe both? I actually haven't thought of it that way. I would say both. Because on the one hand, I especially recently, just haven't felt super supported by friends. I felt like I really had to hold tightly and really think about, okay, what am I going to share when I see these people, you know, to make sure that I don't make someone feel upset. You know, I feel like I've been trying to like protect their emotions, but at the same time, not quite feeling supported. But at the same time, I think I've been asking myself that very question of like, is it time to move on and like kind of let some of these friendships fade and try to find people where there will be more support. So I actually, I don't know. I think it's both. Well, the nice thing is, is that you actually don't have to plan this because these friendships kind of have their own way of being created and also dissolving. And there's something that happens at 30. Maybe you experienced this as well, Anna, right? Where all of a sudden our friendships of the 20s just kind of stopped and then the new friendship started. So it doesn't mean we forget about those college relationships or those childhood friendships, but it does shift. And I always think it's funny that... We think that personal relationships, romantic relationships, should have an end date if they're not going to be the one. But for some reason, we think friendships should be forever. I know. Right? It's like, God forbid you should walk away from a group of girls that you've kind of, you don't have a lot in common with anymore, or that you've outgrown, or that you're on a different trajectory. And like, that's okay. Friendships can be seasonal just like romance. I just wish that women, that we would put a little less pressure on ourselves. Yes. We don't remember every birthday. I don't know. Like, thank you cards. I'm still annoyed about that. <laughs> Why is our gender <laughs> assigned to the thank you notes? <laughs> but, um, Samantha, tell us a little bit about your new relationship. Are you guys seeing each other all the time? Yes. How frequently? I would say all the time. Um yeah, but I don't think it's gotten in the way of like me trying to spend time with other people. We've actually set pretty clear boundaries because especially when we first started dating after we like reached that point of like, okay, we're going to be exclusive. We're actually going to like spend time inside and not outside. And pretty quickly realized we were just spending all of our time together. So uh, we have like very set nights where it's like, we're not hanging out tonight. We're going to see our friends or even on the weekends, if someone's doing something, I try to make a point of like not bringing him and seeing them. But I would say pretty much like five days out of the week. Yeah, so it's better to hang out with people who are also in a couple. I got to tell you, it's really hard to find, you know, I run a business, I have a husband, I have dogs, I have family. I, it's, it's so much, and I'm still maintaining my friendships with my single girlfriends, but it's harder. It doesn't mean that I don't love them anymore, but it's so much easier when I can see my couple friends because then I can bring my husband into it, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to say to him two, three times a week, bye, I'm leaving to go out with the girls. Like, it's just as you kind of evolve, it just makes it more difficult. Right. 
And the friends of yours that are having babies, you might have a baby in the next couple of years too. And then all of a sudden your relationship comes back together at that point. So there's a way that you can gracefully maintain these friendships. Everything kind of comes back together at a later date. There's a friend that's uh, struggling with something with their parents and you guys are going through that at the same time. Or you both have a baby at the same time. You both get married at the same time. You'll need those people again. I would look at your values. You're in this beautiful intellectual city. You're super smart. You're very mature. So I would say like, okay, what are my values? Their education, their hard work, career, sacrifice, relationship, uh, curiosity, adventure. So when you know what your values are and what's important to you, then you cast your friends accordingly. So then when you do talk about the trip you took or the job you got or the great guy you got, they're like, yes, that's awesome. Like, tell me more about him because they have the same values as you do. But if you don't and you align with other women that aren't in the same kind of, I don't want to say like level, I'm just saying value set, they won't want to hear about the things that are going great. You'll be trying to be supportive of them, but it's not your world. So you're sort of painting on the interest. I know it sounds cold, but it's okay to have friendships that are like you call each other once or twice a year or see each other, you know, at the holidays. Like there's friendships like that. And then there's the people that you see more often because you guys are literally living the same parallel lives at the same time. You want to travel together and experience your new relationships together. I think that's what's going on more than anything. Yeah, I would say so. I think, um, I don't know. I just, I feel so emotional because I'm like, I don't want to give up some of these people that are so great and so fun, but like, you're right. Like, I guess we just aren't aligning on a lot of values. And I think that that can make it hard when you just feel like they're not really wanting to support you. You're not struggling with things to talk about and wanting it to be a safe space. And yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. This is you when you're emotional, that's because you're mourning the loss, right? You're letting something go and it's emotional. doesn't matter if it's a friendship, a job, a house, letting go of stuff creates an emotional feeling in us and we have to mourn it a little bit. But life is about changing and evolving at all times. And like Anna said, can't we just give each other a break with like, oh, she's kind of doing her thing right now with her fiance and her kids. And it doesn't mean she doesn't love me. She's just busy with her career. Like, I know she loves me. And that's the nice thing about mature adult female relationships is when we get into our 30s and 40s and beyond, we're more forgiving. It's in our 20s that we hold our friends accountable for like, why didn't you come to brunch? And where were you? It's like, as you get older, people are cooler. Right, Anna? Like, I hope so. Anna, you and I couldn't talk for like a year. We'll connect sometime. It's fine. I would never go to the assumption that you were mad at me. No. <laughs> exactly. Because there's an understanding of like, wait a minute, yeah. she's got a family and a career and I've got a family and a career. It's like, there's a lot going on in our lives. My mom used to say, you know you've got a best friend when a lot of time can go by and you pick up the phone after you're and you're like, hey, and you pick up and you're laughing and no one's judging each other about where have you been. And that's the beauty of getting older. Definitely. Definitely. And it's bigger than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> it's Well, it is big because if you don't have friends that can support your relationship. I mean, I had a girl that I we kind of separated our friendship a little bit because she was going through a heartache when I met my boyfriend and I wasn't gloating, but I was I wanted to share, right? You never get the beginning days back of your new relationship. And who do we want to celebrate with? We want to celebrate that new relationship with our friends. And if they can't sit around and go, tell me more, like, what's he like? It's hard because then you have to sit on all of your celebration. And I remember telling this girl about him and she 
looked at me and said, I can't believe you would talk about a new love when I'm sitting here heartbroken. And then I ended up tap dancing to make it look like I wasn't that happy. And that's brutal, right? That's not a friend. (laughs) But years and years and years and years later, we're really good friends now because we're both married, right? So you don't have to mourn. You don't have to get rid of these people. You don't have to do anything. And I have an idea, by the way, when you're ready to, to reach out to that girl that cut you out of social media. So when you're ready for that, let me know. Yeah, the blocking is odd. She's hurt. She's hurt. And and this is the illogical part because Samantha's happy. So this is why you can't take it too personally. A family member just got really fussy with me when I wanted to be pretty generous with this gift. So I knew that her anger at me was illogical. Mm. And I kind of wrote it out and everything's cool. But it was almost like I couldn't, like, bring myself to rise to being angry or it was just like, okay, all right, this is just a lot for her and it's going to calm down. So I do think that about your friend, although I do think it was pretty immature of her to block you. So there may be some red flags there with just kind of where she's at in her life. And that's okay if you're okay with just sort of slowly kind of grieving that and maybe see where it goes and maybe April has an idea for it. But I'm the kind of person, Samantha, who has one or two good friends and I've always kind of been like that, very intimate. I've always envied people who have large groups of friends and wanted that. And most new people I meet are through work. That's sort of been my experience in life. And as I've gotten older, My friendships with my new friends are great. They're perfectly light. Like, I can talk with them, like, once every couple of months with no demands, which is great. But, Samantha, are you in a more solitary profession? Yes and no. I work with a lot of people who are, you know, a lot older and are lawyers. And, you know, it's not necessarily, like, the best environment to to make friends in that space. But do you see such a social city which has maybe been part of the struggle of like, especially in my early 20s when I first lived here, I feel like I could like go just like wait for the metro and like see someone that I knew or like had met at some point. Like you're just like DC is that kind of place where you can just meet so many people. So there are, I think, opportunities. It's just like a lot of work to kind of go out there and find those different avenues. I think we've spent the last year in a place of reflection and a place of kind of prioritization to some degree, a place of anxiety, a place of like whatever, assessment, but I'm looking around as though it's just my fiance's right. My, he's now my husband. Oh! <gasps> what? Yes, we what? eloped. You did? <laughs> you guys! I'm sorry, I didn't know. I'm sorry, honey, I just blurted that out. But it just, oh, fe- like, I can't say fiance anymore. Oh, you but, guys, that's beautiful. <laughs> thank you. It was awesome. Oh, my awesome. gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was at a local courthouse up in Washington State. It was oh. great. Oh, congratulations, you guys. Thank you. Thanks. That's amazing. That- <laughs> you held that in. Oh, man. <laughs> but um, anyway, making new friends. Here's what I've noticed, and I'm trying to articulate this well. We've spent this time reflecting on our past, and now as we're opening up, we're spending a lot of time thinking about the future. We're excited to get out, and there is a degree of like social anxiety, at least on my end, and I feel it from others, and I think that things will probably naturally happen. 
I just think we're putting a lot of pressure on ourselves. I feel like we've just been hearing this comparison between past and present so much lately with a lot of our listeners. Yes. And I've been doing it myself. I felt like I was actually a little more present during quarantine than I had been for a while. I have always been like goal-driven, like what's tomorrow, what's happening, career, you know, like it's been really nice to like, take my foot off the accelerator. But I guess in the sort of the broader context of how we're looking at things and the, the goals that we want to accomplish, the things we want to do and get done are sort of looming on top of us a little bit. Yeah. So if you're shifting, imagine that friendships would shift as well, right? But I also don't think friendships have to be so, just like dating, by the way. It's why I don't like people to search for love. I don't even love the dating apps because it puts you in hunt mode. We shouldn't be hunting mm -hmm. for connection. Right now, you hopefully have a job you love, Samantha. You have a guy that you are falling for. Could this just be a time of your life where the focus is your relationship, your career? You don't worry about the friends. The friends will be there, like having more faith and more trust. And along the way, there's going to come a woman through work or through the guy you're dating. And all of a sudden, you're going to be connected so fast. I used to tell women, the length of time of a friendship doesn't necessarily give you the value of the friendship. I love that. Yeah? Yes, I love that. Thanks, April. You're welcome, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> right? I remember uh, the woman I used to work for when I first started out in matchmaking, she had these lifelong friends coming to her wedding. And I had just started working at her agency. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, my God, my bridesmaid got pregnant, April. Can you fit into a size two dress? And I, like, sausaged into that dress and flew to Hawaii. And all the friends that she knew forever were disappearing, going hiking, kayaking, doing all kinds of stuff. Where was April? Sewing. I don't sew. Setting tables. I'm putting flowers together. I'm helping her. I'm going to out-bridesmaid everybody. And I remember thinking, I'd only known her a short time. And I was a better friend to her than anybody she had known for 20 years. So the nice thing about as we grow as women is we know ourselves better. So we cast our net differently. Like we know how to cast those new friends into our lives when we know ourselves better. And then therefore the friendships actually happen faster and deeper. They're more meaningful as we get older because we're now more of the fully developed story and it's really exciting. So it doesn't take a lot. Like, I don't think you need to focus on how do I make new friends in the city? It's just going to happen. It happens organically when you're not even looking for it. And you attract it, right? You attract those friendships. My husband didn't even have a core group of awesome friends before we got together. So the other day I had to remind him like, hey, I have brought you some awesome couples. <laughs> and that's our core. That's our group. And I feel like that's bringing something to the table. So you have no idea what he's going to bring, right, in the way of friendships to you. Somebody like that he knows that has a girlfriend. You guys are going to start going out to dinners together. I wouldn't worry so much about it. But can I give you some advice on the girl that blocked you? Yeah. So caveat, a lot of the advice that I give doesn't necessarily change the outcome, but sometimes it makes us feel better. Mm -hmm. So I sense that you're mourning it, not because she's out of the picture, but more so that you're worried that you did something wrong. I lie awake at night, Anna, and I have so much I know. remorse and regret of like, oh, I should have, and oh, I could have done that better. Like, I have an absolute insomnia over stuff like that. <laughs> so the only way I remedy it 
is by whatever I'm afraid of that I did or didn't do, I fix it the next day. I write that letter. I pick up the phone. I apologize. And then I wait. Because if nothing happens that changes that, then I feel like I'm good. I did what I needed to do. So clearly this girl said, I'm not emotionally available or equipped right now to, to kind of deal with you. So I'm just going to call me in a week or two. She was pushing you off because she was hurt by you for whatever, not you did anything wrong, but for some reason she was hurt by you, didn't have the skill set to tell you what had happened. So she kicked the can down the road and then she blocked you. Yeah, it's immature, as Anna said, but it's also a communication skill. And you're actually asking for people with communication skills. You're bright. You have a grad degree, right? You want a communicator. Samantha, your, like, boundary talk has been impressive. Yeah. But why not communicate and say, I don't know what I did to hurt you or to make you block me. I just want to know that I have been wrestling with this and hurting because I feel like I maybe I didn't support you or whatever I might have done that wasn't what you needed at the time. And so I would love to know so that I can maybe heal it or fix it if you're comfortable with that. Just know that I love you and I'm here. And then send it and let it go because the rest is now in her court. Yep. Bigger person. Check. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Like you take that high road so that you can sleep better at night. Samantha, correct me if I'm wrong. At this point, are you trying to figure out if the friendship might still be worth it? Mm-hmm. Because she's someone that I would have honestly considered my best friend for quite a while. And it's weird when you go from like talking to someone all the time to not. But I think just after that kind of behavior, I think it's made me rethink like, is this someone that I want to kind of do that work with? That feels fair to me. I think what you have to measure, is it like an itch, like a mosquito bite? Or is it like an ache, like a little bit of a pit in your stomach? So I think April's solution is great because then you'll have an answer. Mm -hmm. This happened in my life and I didn't get a response. And when I did a year later, it was, let's just, let's just not talk about it. Oh. It was a family member and I'm still in the dark and it's hurt me so much. Because it was so stupid. They can't tell you. It was so illogical. Do you think? I'm sure. Well, I mean, I'm a coach, right? So when people are going through a divorce, I don't take sides. I try to help two people individually. And I think what happened was it was like, well, you weren't on my side. But it's not that, right? It was, I I have to stay neutral. And when I didn't ever get to hear why this person left my life, it was so painful. To this day, if I talk about it, I'll get teary-eyed. But then I thought after a few years of this person being absent and not ever calling me to say, here's what I heard, which is, I could rectify it like that. I can honestly say that that never happened, right? Something got ruined in the pipeline. It wasn't me. I'm always very honest and very loving. I could fix it. But guess what? When people tell me to reach out, which I have, it doesn't change the outcome. And now that I have space and time from it, I'm like, you know what? I don't want that person in my life that would disappear without confronting me and having a conversation because one of my values is honest, transparent communication. So it doesn't matter who did what. It's come to me and say, hey, April, what's up? I just heard this. Did you really say that? Or what's going on? I would be able to defend myself. So it's not going to change anything. And that's why we have to let go of our attachment to outcomes and just be expressive and then go, wait a minute. Do I want somebody who would do that to me? At the end of the day, is that really what's right for me? That's how you have to look at life. 
And that's the beauty of the 30s. It is a whole new crop of people in your life that are going to start coming to you. And it's really exciting. I mean, my closest friends are people I've met once I was about 30. Those are the people that I'm bonded with. I just want you to look forward to the kind of people that will communicate at your level. Just communicate so that others communicate with you back. And if they don't, you've got to just let it go. Okay. With our old childhood friendships, though, they add value in the way of nostalgia and reminiscing in somebody who knew you when, mm -hmm. but they can be stagnant. Sometimes you stay in that place. And they are of massive value for those reasons. But somebody new in your life that taps into your same sense of humor or where you're at in life, they're out there and you'll find them. Even before this call, Samantha, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I wish I really could articulate it better. It just keeps feeling like there's this feeling of past, future, and we're not feeling as stable with just the present right now. I think keeping mindful of, of just where we are, I guess. I think you're onto something, Anna. You're talking about nostalgia. I think that has been heightened because of what we've all just been through and continue to be in, that we're longing for the past. And it's triggering us. It's triggering us in friends. It's triggering us in romantic, really. I'm getting emotional talking about this. It's triggering us because of this whole thing of like, I want my life back. I want things back the way they were. And we get stuck, right? And because the future is a mystery, the future is not always easy to see and feel because we can't touch it. And so if we can just sort of understand that, what Anna just said, there is something that's going on more than I've ever seen before of not willing to move on and accept the new normal, right? But whatever that is in our lives and just being patient with ourselves when we are feeling that not wanting to let go part. There has been this feeling of in talking to people like that decisions have to be made right now. Yes. And I just think we need to pause for a second. Mm -hmm. We still need to puzzle <laughs> for just one more month, <laughs> please. I want to keep puzzling. I love puzzles. I'll come don't make me go you. out. <laughs> I don't want to go out either. <laughs> right. I get it. Samantha, I don't know if it's been directly helpful, but I hope it's of comfort at least that you're certainly not alone. Yeah. That there's a lot of people questioning a lot of things. So, Samantha, like you said, like taking measure of the value of this person. And if you are thinking about her on like a daily, hourly basis, there's one side of things of like, if you want to continue this friendship with firm boundaries, I think April's text is perfect. And I think that that would be the rational thing. Mm -hmm. But it's, Samantha, it really is like how much you're thinking about this person and how much you are missing this person. It sounds like you're also wondering, well, is it just because I'm lonely because I don't have somebody to replace her with? And that could be part of it. You know, it really could be. And I think that's only something that you can kind of assess over the next few months. I just think you're growing and really coming into your own as a woman and learning what it is that you want. And just like when we're dating, we should figure out what do I want my friends to love me for? What do I bring to the table as a friend? What do I want to be celebrated for as a friend? That's important to know. And then you'll be able to find the right friends. Samantha, did we give you some food for thought at least? Yeah, I think too, just because I've had 
in that friendship, but I think with a few others, just had so much anxiety. And I feel like that idea of just like taking a pause, thinking about it, knowing that like you can move on from friendships. I think those kind of key points, because I've just been like spitting every night about how I've been interacting with people. And I think that that point, April, you made about like, this, I think is like the first time I really felt like myself, like really comfortable with myself set and what I'm doing professionally, where I live, like it's, been very different, I would say, really over the past year than like ever before, which I think I've only just been realizing recently. (laughs) So yeah, so I think it could also just be that growing component, but also like just reminding myself like that it's okay, because it's definitely been causing me a lot of stress. If there's stress in friendship, just to get along, that means that we've grown past that friendship and we're trying to make something work that no longer works. It's growing pains right? When we grow up, our knees hurt, right? When we start to get taller, that's all that's going on. There's friction because this isn't a model that works anymore. But it doesn't mean these friendships are done. They're just going to go into a separate area for a little while until there's more growth on their part. And then you guys will intersect again at some point, or you won't. There's no need to end relationships. They just evolve into what they've always meant to be. Samantha, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. And also, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> like, I'm so excited. That's like so exciting. We saw my family and it kind of slipped out the same way. My aunt asked me, you are going to be a stepmom. How are you feeling about that? And I said, well, actually, I am a stepmom as of like four days ago. <laughs> Oh but, my gosh. but it was great. Everything about it just felt right. So anyway, thanks, guys. Oh, my gosh. I can't get the smile off my face right now. My face hurts. <laughs> it was oh. great. It was in San Juan Island up in Washington oh. State, which, just, which is like the most magical place on earth. Well, thank you, Samantha. And <laughs> I love you both. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Samantha. Love you, Anna. Love you, too. <laughs> Bye. Bye, you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. 